Hello, everyone, and welcome into this edition of the Sports Detective Podcast. I am your host, James Williams, and today, oh boy, we have a really great guest, Jake Hatch, a BYU Utah insider, works for the radio station down there in Utah, Salt Lake area. He is the host of the Locked On Cougars podcast, the Locked On Utes podcast. Really great guest, gives us a lot of insight, talking about Mormons versus mullets, talking about BYU's football, a little bit of Zach Wilson, why Zach Wilson is going to be a great pro and we should have nothing to worry about if you are a New York Jets fan. Also get into Utah, Kyle Whittingham, his long tenure as a Utah football coach. And then we also get into a little bit of Utah jazz talk at the end. So, but first, let's talk about this. I thought this would be an interesting opening segment. Questionable takes. So it's not like a hot take. It's not like worst take. It's not a first take. It's a questionable take. So what's a questionable take? It's a take that people assume is true, but is it? It's a take that may be true, but there isn't actually any evidence to support that it is true. It may be true at some point, but I don't know if it actually is. And it's something that I think I kind of disagree with on a few parts of it. So let's start. Take one. The NBA having a shortened offseason was a horrible decision because we are having a bunch of players getting hurt like LeBron James, Joel Embiid, bad NBA. How dare you do that? Okay, well, first off, wouldn't the effects from the shortened offseason not affect injuries in March but maybe affect injuries in May and June. Kind of how NBA injuries typically really start hitting later in the season. Wouldn't it? And also, we can't give players that excuse because if we keep saying this stuff up, oh, injuries, short and off, every, every single team that gets knocked out in the playoffs is going to be saying that. And we can't give them that excuse. And also, this is why it's a questionable take. We don't know that it might actually ring true come playoffs time where we start seeing more injuries of players that were specifically in the bubble. But I mean, even if you look right now, actually the guys that weren't in the bubble are actually the guys that are getting hurt more, like Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, guys like that. But LeBron James, Joel Embiid, look at go, go back. If you, if you disagree with me on this, go back and look at their injuries. Those were freak injuries. Those weren't wear and tear injuries from a shortened offseason. LeBron James, if he just wasn't going after a loose ball, and didn't have a guy fall on his ankle, he'd be fine right now. He'd be healthy. Joel Embiid went up for a, you know, authoritative dunk, and then he landed awkwardly. If he would have tried to do just a soft layup, he'd probably be healthy. And also, people like Joel Embiid who are injury-prone, I don't know, because he missed the first three years of his career because of injuries, probably more likely, especially since he's 7'2 as well, Probably more likely that dude's going to get hurt. Basketball is a sport that we underrate. It might not be as physical, even though I think we overrate the physicality of the old days. It's not as physical, but you still have a bunch of really tall guys and the verticals have gotten so much higher for everyone. Now, you know, in the 90s, people, not many people had a 40 inch vertical. Now everyone has a 40 inch vertical, except for a handful of guys. 
but it's just a bunch of tall guys running and jumping, landing awkwardly in traffic, basically. So, yeah, we're going to have injuries. But the idea that a shortened offseason caused these injuries is just not true. The Joel Embiid and LeBron's were freakish. Those weren't because of a shortened offseason. Take two. Questionable take two. Oh, you got to get a quarterback in this year's NFL draft because next year's class has no quarterbacks in it. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. You got to get one now. If you don't get one now, you're screwed for another two years. Okay, well, you can, you could be right about that. You could be right. As of right now, it doesn't look like there's any good quarterback prospects next year. That's what it looks like now. But as we talked to Jake here in a little bit about with Zach Wilson, a year ago at this time, we didn't know Zach Wilson was going to go to the NFL draft. We didn't know that Zach Wilson was even going to start for BYU. There was a legit quarterback competition there. Okay? So, with that being said, and, and in fact, I was just listening to people talk. A lot of people think that Mac Jones is going to be the number three pick. A lot of people think that. So you have two guys that weren't, you know, okay, back up a second. The three guys that we knew a year ago at this time were going to be first-round draft picks were Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, and Trey Lance. We didn't know about Mac Jones. We didn't know about Zach Wilson. And now it looks like the two guys we didn't know about out of the top five are going to be second and third. We didn't know about Joe Burrow a year before. We didn't know about Kyler Murray a year before. We didn't know about Baker Mayfield a year before. All those guys are pretty good NFL quarterbacks. So my point in saying that is we don't know. Someone's going to emerge. And the thing is with Zach Wilson, I think with young men, especially in sports, they develop at different times where it might have taken Zach Wilson three years to develop versus at Iowa State, Brock Purdy, first year starter or starts, you know, middle of his first year and it's kind of, you know, more or less plateaued since then. So is there not going to be any quarterbacks in next year's class? We don't know. Also, there's a good chance that you're going to have more veteran quarterbacks on the market next year. There's a good chance that Aaron Rodgers might get upset and want to leave. There's a good chance that Russell Wilson might still be upset and want to leave. There's a chance that Deshaun Watson will sit out this entire season and be available next offseason. So you could say you have to get a quarterback now. Questionable take number three. You know, what's actually wrong with baseball is, don't you feel like everyone says that? The only thing that we talk about with baseball is what's wrong with it. By the only positive things, the World Series, we'll talk about scandals. We'll talk about long-term contracts. And we'll talk about when guys don't get accepted into the Hall of Fame or voted into the Hall of Fame because they took a bunch of steroids. Those are really the only national conversations that we have about baseball, and it sucks. But what's actually wrong with baseball, people say, it takes too long. It takes too long. Baseball's way too long. Now, it's easy to point at baseball for that because they don't have a clock like the NFL, the NBA, uh, college basketball, college football, a lot of other sports. Oh, gosh, it just takes too long. Well, you can say that, but every single other sport that we have now, every sport, 
takes longer now than it used to. That's a fact. The 2020 or 2019 college football championship lasted five hours. If it was a competitive game, it would have lasted six or seven hours. I timed the last two minutes of the UCLA-Alabama game a few nights ago. Actually, it was at 1.54. I started timing it in the middle of a replay. It lasted 16 minutes to the end of regulation. Ended on a buzzer beater to send it into overtime. If I would have started timing exactly at two minutes, it probably would have been about 17 minutes. Meaning, it took 17 minutes of actual real time to finish two minutes of an actual game. But we aren't, but I mean, some people might be saying with basketball, we got to get rid of replays, even though in that game, there was really only one replay in the last two minutes. But the idea that, oh, it takes too long, that's going to get people to watch it. No, 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 no. That's not actually going to solve the problem. Another thing that people say is wrong with baseball, oh, too many defensive switches. Got to eliminate the defensive switch. Get that out of here. Got to get that out of here. Okay, I agree with that. I agree with baseball being too long, too. But if I go up to a coworker at a water cooler today and I say, hey, man, you got to start watching baseball. You, you got to start. You, you won't believe what has happened. I'd be like, oh, my God, what, what happened? Is someone about to break a record? Is something legendary going to happen? Is there like a really compelling superstar? No. They got rid of the defensive switch. You got to start watching. No, that's not actually going to get people to watch baseball. Yes, those two things are going to elevate it as an entertainment product and make it more, you know, appealing to fans and make it you know, more fun even to baseball fans. But the problem is with baseball, nothing's compelling. You can follow the NBA. I watch a YouTube show by Jason Concepcion, Crooked Media. He used to be at The Ringer. It used to be The Ringer NBA Desktop. Now it's Crooked Media, all caps NBA on YouTube. That show is really good, really entertaining, really well put together. It follows the NBA, but it doesn't follow anything on the NBA on the court. It's all about the drama of the NBA. You know, stuff go, you know, it's going to probably have Kevin Durant's uh, Twitter thing that he had this week, something like that. It's going to have, you know, weird things that happen on the court. It's just pretty much a bunch of drama, a bunch of, you know, funny things, you know, kind of news stuff like that. It's, you know, you don't even have to follow the NBA on the court to follow the NBA, if that makes sense. And that's the problem with baseball. Could you follow baseball without following the product on the field? You're probably going to be pretty bored. Even though I hate that Deshaun, or I don't hate, I hate when sometimes when it seems like Okay, let me back up a second. Sometimes it's annoying if stars are bouncing around all the time in the NBA, and let's just stick to the NBA. But hey, it's better that stars are bouncing around to different situations than Mike Trout, who's probably one of the most talented baseball players ever, is just going to be with the Los Angeles Angels his entire career win 80 games a year or barely sneak into the playoffs then get knocked out right away. Wouldn't it be more fat? Wouldn't it have been awesome if this offseason last three months we were talking about Mike Trout requesting a trade to go to the Yankees, Red Sox, Dodgers, Giants, whoever else? Wouldn't have that been fascinating? Wouldn't have that been fat? That would have been awesome. 
the the you know the excitement for opening day to see Mike Trout in a Yankees uniform or whatever other uniform you want to put him in, that would have been so compelling. But I mean, wouldn't it be more fun if a pitcher is like, yeah, I strike out every good baseball player or whatever, and you actually had beefs in baseball? I mean, there might be some now, but baseball solution to it because of the you know tradition of it, it's like, you know, hey, this guy uh, flipped his bat and stared at his home run shot for half a second too long. You know what my retaliation is going to be? Try and throw a ball at his head and murder him. Or send a message. So there's ways that you can improve baseball. Yes, it's too long. Yes, we can eliminate defensive switches. But those aren't actually going to be things that are going to draw the casual fan to be watching baseball regularly. Questionable take number four. Kevin Durant and the Brooklyn Nets. Oh my goodness. Kevin Durant, how dare you? You are stacking the deck again. This is unfair. How dare you? Adding LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin. Oh my goodness, Kevin Durant. How dare you stack the deck so unfavorably in your favor? You can only win if you have a stacked deck, Kevin Durant. How dare you? Now, Kevin Durant made the news this week for the Michael Rappaport stuff. Uh, Pretty much just cyberbullying him kind of on a, which is weird to cyberbuller cyberbully a celebrity but i guess you can so you know that was the thing that kevin durant but the idea that people were actually saying that he's stacking the deck do we do we not remember how unfair golden state was like, that was so unfair every single team in the league knew they didn't have a chance that's never happened in nba history other than maybe in the 60s with the celtics it was so unfair. You had Steph Curry, two-time MVP. Klay Thompson, who was probably, if Steph Curry's the best shooter ever, Klay Thompson might be second. He's that good. Who was also a fantastic two-way defender. Even though Draymond Green's not the greatest defensive player ever, he's really good defensively. He won a defensive player of the year for a reason. His defense is the reason the NBA changed. That, that's part of the reason, because he could guard fives, even though they had a six-inch height advantage on him. And the de- their defense would actually be better if he did that. Like, their team would actually be better if he was doing that and he was a small ball five. They had Andre Iguodala, who is this generation's Robert Ory. You had Harrison Barnes, who isn't Kevin Durant, but he's a dang good basketball player. He's a very talented basketball player. Plus, you had a team that went, you know, super deep into the bench, Sean Livingston, for a few years. And pretty much they replaced Harrison Barnes for Kevin Durant. Do we understand how unfair that was? See, the idea that now that... You know, you have all these guys on the Brooklyn Nets kind of have question marks, right? James Harden, never seen him really do it in the playoffs. Like, it's not it's not a lie that James Harden's numbers drop in the postseason. Like, that's factual. That's factual. We've seen him not show up for postseason games. Like, that's something that's happened. Kyrie Irving, injury prone. And if you want to say, hey, he's unreliable because he's gone on two hiatuses this year. Um, I can't, I think I might've broken it down here a little bit. Why, you know, on this podcast where just some of the things that's happening, you know, Kyrie's had an emotional early part of his life. So if he is actually taking time off for emotional, mental distress, I would kind of believe him, even though, you know, national media does a tough time or does a bad time, you know, telling that story of Kyrie, but I'm not going to do it here. Cause I only have so much time. You have Kevin Durant, who's played like what? 10 games this year. 
Like, he hasn't even played in two months. And then you have Blake Griffin, who had one dunk prior to coming to Brooklyn, who looks washed, who has lost his athleticism. And you have LaMarcus Aldridge, who's 36. The Spurs are trying to make the playoffs right now. Like, they're trying to compete for the playoffs right now. Wouldn't they like having LaMarcus Aldridge if they're trying? Like, they're not tanking. If they're trying to compete for the playoffs, wouldn't they want LaMarcus Aldridge? So the idea that getting Blake Griffin and LaMarcus Aldridge means that the Nets are stacking the deck, I just don't buy that. Not to say that the Brooklyn Nets won't win the championship and won't you know beat whoever in the finals by six games and go on a really good playoff run. Because the way that they're playing, the ball movement that they're playing with, this new James Harden that we're seeing that's like really like a team first kind of a guy, which is weird. Kyrie Irving, who, when he plays, is really good. Kevin Durant, where we know what he can do. And you can get something out of Blake Griffin, something out of LaMarcus Aldridge. Hey, they might win the championship, but this isn't... Let's not say he's stacking the deck here. This isn't anything like Golden State. And if anything, if you want to talk about stacking the deck, the Los Angeles Lakers got Andre Drummond. Andre Drummond is 27 years old. A multiple-time All-Star. And was drafted the same year as Anthony Davis. He's not an old guy like Blake Griffin or DeAndre. Or, excuse me, or uh, LaMarcus. He's not old. Like, if anything, that's more egregious than the Nets signing LaMarcus Aldridge. But for some reason, we're deciding to point that arrow at Kevin Durant. I'm defending Kevin Durant there. I'm not going to defend any of that stuff with the Rappaport. I'm not going to defend the stuff he got for going to Golden State. But I'll defend him there. He's not stacking the deck. Yes, you should get these guys coming to your team that are, you know, buyout guys. But he, he's not stacking the deck. All right, our last questionable take before we get into our interview with Jake. Jeez, you know, we were being so disrespectful to Pac-12 basketball and not respecting them as much as any other conference. How dare you, college basketball, national media? How dare you? Okay, so these guys that, for a living, watch college basketball, that watch ACC, that you know, they watch the Pac-12. It's not like they don't watch. They watch, they do all this stuff for a living. They write about basketball, cover basketball, get inside for basketball, talk to people who are in the programs. You know, they talk to everyone. They know more about this stuff than us. They know more. But the idea that we were all wrong about the Pac-12, I refused the notion that, like, when all the evidence prior to the NCAA tournament was saying the Pac-12 is not a good basketball conference or not as good, I should maybe clarify, as a lot of other basketball conferences, maybe the Big Ten, if you want to point at them, or the Big 12 or the ACC, or maybe even the Big East, or maybe even some other ones that you want to name. It's not that we were all wrong. It's just that what we are seeing happen in the NCAA tournament is different than we have seen the entire regular season. Let's look over a few teams. UCLA was on a four-game losing streak headed into the NCAA tournament. They were one of the last four teams in. They were lucky to make it. Again, they were on a four-game losing streak entering the tournament. And now they're on a, what, four-game winning streak or I guess five game. So the idea that UCLA wasn't going to do well in this tournament wasn't that far-fetched of an idea. 
because they weren't looking good prior to that. Oregon State. Oregon State went on an awesome run in the Pac-12 tournament and went on an awesome run in the NCAA tournament getting to the Elite Eight. Oregon State, if you go back to their first game in the Pac-12 tournament against UCLA, if UCLA hits their free throws at the end of that game, Oregon State loses that game and Oregon State doesn't even make the NCAA tournament. We don't even think about them making the NCAA tournament and they don't go to the Elite Eight. I mean, just just think about that. If UCLA hits their free throws, Oregon State's not in the tournament and they don't get to go on an Elite Eight run. And the Pac-12 does have a reputation of not being good in the NCAA tournament. It's not like they're awesome every year in the tournament and we're just like, hey, why are we underappreciating them? I was looking up some of this stuff. A few years ago, I believe it was 2018. It was the DeAndre Ayton year. Yeah, that'd be 2018. The Pac-12 didn't win a single game in the NCAA tournament. They didn't win a single game. Were we disrespecting them then? Or were we properly rating them? Or were we even overrating them then? I mean, we can't just, you know, flip-flop on our opinions and do all this stuff. Hey, good for the Pac-12. They're getting a bunch of money from being this far in the NCAA tournament. Maybe this is a springboard into the 2020s where they might be a basketball power conference. And I would love to see that. I would love to see teams like Oregon State make the tournament every year. UCLA be freaking awesome at basketball. I'd love to see USC be awesome at basketball. Oregon's probably the best sports program in that conference. The Washington schools, the Arizona schools, Utah, Colorado. I'd love to see all of those teams be really good at basketball. But the idea that we were wrong about the Pac-12, I'm not sure about that. We'll have to wait and see what happens next year, the next few years. And if they keep producing in the NCAA tournament, keep producing nationally, then yeah, we might have been wrong. But right now, it's a questionable take. Okay, now let's get to our interview with Jake Hatch. All right, we are now being joined by Jake Hatch, who is a Utah and BYU insider, host of the uh, Locked On Utes podcast and Locked On B- or Cougars podcast. Um, did I get it all there? Yeah, you got it. Uh, yeah, I do two podcasts daily covering the Utes and Cougars. In addition to my radio responsibilities, I work out here in Salt Lake City for the Zone Sports Network, where the Utah Jazz flagship station. So. Got all three of the major teams here in Utah covered every single day. Good. So how did you get to start covering, talking about and covering Utah sports? Are you from Utah or are you uh, kind of migrated in? I, I'm a Utah born and raised soul. I grew up uh, in Orem, Utah, which is about 40 miles south of Salt Lake City. Uh, I went to school at Brigham Young University, BYU. Uh, while I was at BYU, I got an internship working with Greg Rubel, who is the play-by-play voice for BYU Athletics. I uh, worked with him for a year, had a blast. Never thought I'd be working in sports radio. I always wanted to work in sports, but never thought that sports media or sports radio would be my, my career. But then after that, I got an internship with David Locke, who is the play-by-play voice for the Utah Jazz. Worked with him for another year, and then after that, I was hired on by the station I now currently work for uh, to create a BYU-centric uh, radio show. And from there, I moved to our morning drive show, which is called DJ and PK in the Morning. 
uh, working with David James and Patrick Kinahan. They've been a tandem that's been doing morning drive out here for nearly two decades. So it's been a lot of fun. I've been in, I've been in it for about a decade now. Uh, I started in 2011 as an intern and I've been doing full-time radio for almost nine years now. Good. Good. Well, it's probably a lot of fun getting the radio, especially if you're with like a good, you know, staff that's been there for a while and they're kind of like a well-oiled machine. You probably learn a lot. You, you do. It's fast paced. It's always new. It feels like every, every day is a different challenge, but I absolutely love the grind because it, it's just a ton of fun to talk about sports and have it pay your bills. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's the dream. Uh, so the rest of the country, we kind of look at Utah um, maybe not people over West and in the mountains do, but the, kind of the rest of the country views Utah almost like a foreign country. It, <laughs> it's different from like the rest of the country. You know, there isn't, you can't, or people don't drink coffee, not much alcohol. Uh, you said you were born and raised in Utah. Um, how do you think living in Utah is different than living in other States? I freely admit that Utah is a unique uh, outpost in the United States of America. Of course, it's dominated by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Many of you will know it as the LDS or Mormon Church. Uh, yeah, they advocate abstaining from coffee and alcohol, obviously. And it, it, it gives people a perception of, of Utah that's a little different than I think most people when they actually come out and visit uh, find it to be. Uh, but I, I do agree. It's kind of a unique state. Uh, it's just kind of how things are out here. I'm born and raised native son of this state. Uh, I, I love being from here. We've got mountains uh, that we can be to. I, I literally, from my house right now, if I wanted to go skiing, I could be on the slopes in 30 minutes. That's how close the mountains are here in Utah along the Wasatch Front. So it, it's a fun, fun place to be if you like the outdoors, but it's also got a very vibrant economy. Uh, some people are calling it the Silicon Slopes. You probably heard of Silicon Valley out in California. Yeah. Uh, they're going through an absolute tech boom here in Utah. And it's actually a stone's throw away from my house. I, I could be at some of these biggest companies, these billion-dollar companies. I could be at their front door in five minutes from my house. So it's just crazy to think everything's so centrally located here in the state. But I, I love being from here. I love to talk to people about, about Utah. But I completely understand anybody coming from the outside. You mentioned you're from Iowa. I talk to people from the East Coast all the time, and perceptions are what they are. But I encourage everybody, yourself included, James, I would love to have you guys come out and see Utah. I think it would really open your eyes about how cool of a place this is, despite the reputations that precede it. My question might have been a little bit mis misleading because Utah is like a beautiful state. Um, I've only seen pictures of it. I know some people that like went to uh, tour the BYU campus. And I remember uh, one of my friends sending me a picture of like the BYU football stadium and like the, the, the mountain view around the stadium. I like my jaw dropped and I was like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. That is incredible. No wonder like going through all of the history of like Utah and BYU. I was like, no wonder BYU is like really good at football for a while. Like, which kind of, which I didn't know until I really looked into it. Um, you know, Salt Lake city, obviously, you know, really impressive you know, because it's a salt lake yeah. in, you know, <laughs> in let's put it this way. This state, you can go from seeing Red Rocks. You've probably seen the pictures of Delicate Arch and whatnot, uh, Zion National Park. Uh, those are all in this state, as well as the snow-covered peaks like you talked about with Lavelle Edwards Stadium. Of course, the Great Salt Lake, as you mentioned. There's a lot of things to see in this state, and there's a lot of diversity in terms of just what you can see in nature out here. 
but it's a ton of fun. It's never a dull moment. Yes. Uh, but we didn't come here to talk about uh, mountains and national parks and the great salt Lake. We came here to talk about uh, football specifically kind of the Utah college football scene right now. So talking about, like I talked, I had a guest on from Texas uh, the last podcast that we recorded and I was listening to his old podcast because he's a Texas Longhorns fan. Okay. Who, they, they, they can never be happy. That's kind of their thing. But uh, he, he mentioned something on there about like, you know, the Texas, Texas A&M thing, which they haven't played in like 10 years. And cool. there was still kind of like a rivalry there. And I was like, oh yeah, that's like, right. Like they actually have like in-state rivalries. So just kind of going through the power structure of the Utah schools. I went up I went and like looked up like head-to-head matchups. It seems recently like Utah's really been dominating it. So I assume that like Utah is kind of like the number one dog in the state of Utah right now, followed by BYU. And then Utah State's kind of like the third off in the distance. I don't even know if they're acknowledged by most people. Uh, I think you got a pretty good uh, summation right there because yes, it's been over a decade since BYU has beaten Utah. There's a joke going on that uh, hashtag 10 is coming, which be 10 straight wins over the Cougars for the Utes. But this is, I'm telling you, this is an absolutely incredible rivalry. It it exists in everyday life. It's, I would put it up against almost any rivalry college football wise in the entire country. Uh, BYU and Utah fans, they love to go to each other, like to get after each other. All you got to do is just go on Twitter or on social media, just search out BYU versus Utah and you can see it. And it exists literally daily. You, you, they'll, they'll bicker over the funniest things. It's it's, but it's just, we talk about it on my radio show that I do every day. We call it the rivalry in all things. Cause that's exactly what it is. It permeates everyday life here in this state, but you're right. Utah right now, they are the preeminent program. They're the power five program being in the pac 12, but BYU, they would love nothing more than to knock Utah off that pedestal because they, they harken back. As you mentioned, you looked into the BYU football history. You can go back 40 and 50 years. BYU's got a national championship. They have all kinds of all American quarterbacks, Jim McMahon, Steve Young, BYU fans want nothing more than to have those whole, those glory days be I love days right now. I, I love Jim McMahon. I I read about him with the '85 Bears, and yeah. I, I just uh, he's like the key to if he if he is healthy, he probably if if you, if you give him like seven years of health, like perfect health, the Bears probably win like three Super Bowls. He makes yeah. a bunch of Pro Bowls, and he's probably a Hall of Famer. Probably, like he, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. And BYU actually has like a bunch of like really good quarterbacks. Just looking back on it. Uh, 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 who was the guy that won the Heisman? Ty uh, Detmer. Ty Detmer. Yeah. I was looking at him today. That was also a really weird season that he had. It, I was looking back at it. I was like, he threw 42 touchdowns and 28 interceptions. I feel like that would rule you out today. But the fact that like 42 touchdowns back then is a lot different than what 42 touchdowns is today. That's probably why he won it. Yeah, it was a different era of football. There's no doubt about that. In this era of college football, if you threw 28 picks in a season, your team would be lucky to be 500, I feel like. You'd be benched after like week three. Well, also also true, yes. <laughs> got like nine picks through three weeks. Yeah. Even though you're a BYU guy, is there? can you sense that Utah, let's just stick, well, we'll say the whole state other than of BYU has like an animosity towards BYU since it's like a private school, you know, the private school, state school, you see that dynamic in North Carolina with North Carolina and Duke. 
there is a little bit of that because BYU is owned and operated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, the, the Mormon church. So uh, there is a dynamic there of the, I guess we'll call it church versus state type of a deal where, yeah, you have the private school owned by a, re- by a religion, and then you have the state-sponsored uh, school, the flagship school of the state of Utah right up the road, and they sit 40 miles apart from one another. And the vast majority of the population in the state of Utah lives within about a two-hour drive of either one of those universities. And I'm telling you, they they are true rivals in every sense of the word. Yeah, it was too bad that they didn't get to play each other last year. That would have been pretty nice, especially with how good BYU was with Zach Wilson. Uh, that's the thing, BYU fans, they they wanted nothing more than to let that BYU team have their chance at Utah because they were very um, confident that they would have ended the losing streak. But I'll have to wait for another year, wait for this fall, I suppose. Yeah, let, let's stick with BYU football here for a little bit uh, because just going through it, this is probably the best BYU football season in 20 years. And yeah, yeah they went 11-1, and including a really dominant win against UCF. Um, and the fact that like the Pac-12 was in flux, you know, the whole year, because I really don't know what to make out of it. Like some teams play three games, some teams play five. Iowa State who beat Oregon in the Fiesta Bowl. Oregon was like the the substitute team that had to come in because uh, USC, I believe, had COVID or something like that. Yeah, uh, it was it was crazy. The Pac-12 season, it was all kinds of stop start. So, yeah, it was very, very weird. But could I make the case and are BYU fans making the case that BYU right now is the best West Coast football program. Oh, man. I think there'd be BYU fans that would make that argument. Sure. Uh, they they finished the season ranked number 11 in the final AP poll. Uh, there's a lot of BYU fans who just look back and say, had they gotten uh, – we'll talk about the Coastal Carolina game, I'm sure, here in a moment. But they came up one yard short of winning that football game. And there's a lot of BYU fans still who talk about, had they gotten that one more yard, they're sitting at 12-0. and 0. Who's to say that they're not in a New Year's Six Bowl game and absolutely staking claim to being the best team in the Western United States? So, yeah, I think there are BYU fans who would argue that right now. I'd say they're in the mix. There's no doubt about that. But, uh, man, it's it's hard for me to compare considering how just disjointed the Pac-12 season was overall. Yeah, uh, I kind of did that part jokingly. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. But BYU, and part of the reason I had you on, if they went undefeated too, might have been in the Fiesta Bowl. Um, yeah. But part of the reason I had you on is because they had one of the most interesting football seasons all year because, I mean, you have the Big Ten who doesn't start. You have the Pac-12, as we mentioned, didn't start. Uh, So BYU is one of these teams that's playing everybody that they can. Uh, They play some of the most games, I think, of anyone in the entire season and probably one one of the best teams in the country. And they also were probably like one of the most fun teams. And they debatably probably played in the most entertaining football game in the entire college football season last year against Coastal Carolina, which was a really weird game. And you can expand more on details on this where wasn't it. They, uh, they like didn't even know they were playing each other until like Tuesday that week. Right. Yeah. So Coastal Carolina was supposed to play Liberty university that week and Liberty had a COVID-19 outbreak and Coastal was nationally ranked at the time, actually had college game day going to their campus for the first time ever, and they needed a game. So 
Uh, phone calls were made. BYU had an opening that week. And, yeah, they put this game together on the fly. Uh, BYU, funny enough, actually sent their equipment truck. They, they drove it out of Provo before the contract or the game was even agreed to officially. They were like, you know what? Get on the road. we got to get you to uh, North Carolina if we're going to play this game. If we have to call you back because the game doesn't happen, so be it. But get on the road. And they sent them out. Uh, it be, actually became like a national sensation. The BYU uh, truck was being tracked by the national media. It was just a fascinating, fascinating story. And it, it turned into one heck of a game. There's no doubt about that. Uh, BYU came out a little bit slow. I think they got punched in the mouth a little bit by what Coastal Carolina was doing. But they did uh, at the end. Zach Wilson rallied them, moved them all the way down the field against the clock with no timeouts. And then that pass to Dax Milne came up one yard short. And there are many, many BYU fans who I think will rue that one yard for many, many years to come. Yeah. Did you like that the game was getting called a uh, Mormon or Mullets versus Mormons? I thought it was hilarious. I actually had a buddy who I, I wasn't there covering that game. I had a buddy who was, though. I told him, if you can find me a Mullets versus Mormons T-shirt, you probably saw those on the broadcast, get me one. He never was able to find one for me, and I'm, I'm actually pretty sad I did not get one. Yeah, if you guys won that game, that would probably be like a legendary thing. It probably still is even with that. I'd love to get like a home and home with that again. I'd love to see that again because that game was even really weird too. Cause like at the end of the first half, I remember watching it. There was like a fight that broke out where uh did Zach Wilson, like throw a, you know, a hail Mary pass and a guy interception intercepted. And then a defensive lineman who'd been kind of, I watched like a video breakdown of it today. <laughs> like this guy, like they, you know, him and Zach Wilson were kind of having a thing like the entire game, yes. where, you know, they're kind of talking and pushing each other. So uh, can you kind of break down what happened in that fight? Maybe why, you know, why that fight happened? So Zach, Zach threw up a Hail Mary at the end of the first half and it was intercepted. And if you watch the replay and you can all see it, Zach Wilson's kind of like tracking the play with his eyes and he starts to move towards where the play is going. Cause as a quarterback, you don't want to have to make the tackle if you don't have to. It's a business decision. Keep yourself healthy and all that stuff. But all of a sudden, yeah, a defensive lineman as well as a linebacker just come up and absolutely start mauling him. And it turned into a, a pretty big hole of blue on the field right at halftime there. And you're right. There was a bunch of chirping back and forth. Coastal Carolina, they wanted to state claim that they were the best, if not one of the best uh, G5 programs out there. And they saw BYU as an absolute target. And they won the game. So they, they get – they get the bragging rights. And the fun part about this is, is it that there's a handshake deal that was put in place originally that there will be a return game. Coastal Carolina will come out to BYU at some point down the road. They haven't set in stone when that will be, but yes, we will be seeing the Mullets versus Mormons part two. This time will be in Provo. Yes, that would be awesome. And then you guys are, well, I mean, uh, Coastal had fans, but you guys will probably have fans. Did, did BYU have fans this year? Uh, they had some. Uh, so the, the COVID-19 pandemic wreaked havoc on everything. Uh, BYU, I believe, played two games at home that had fans in the stands. Uh, no more than 5,000 fans at most. They did allow family and friends to go to the other games that they played in. Funny enough, the biggest crowd that they played in front of was at the University of Houston when they played there against the other the Red Cougars. Uh, so that was actually the biggest crowd they played in front of. I went to the bowl game when they played UCF and Boca Raton. That was a pretty decent crowd as well. Mm-hmm. Was it a good decision for BYU to become an independent school, not have a conference? 
Okay, now that is a loaded question. Depends on who you ask out here. I am of the opinion that BYU made the best decision for themselves at the time. And what I mean by that is, at the time, the Mountain West was very, very strong. You had TCU there. You had Utah there. Uh, Boise State, there was always the annual rumors of Boise State making the jump from the WAC to the Mountain West in those days. They made the jump after BYU, Utah, and TCU left. It would have been nice to have them in there and have a nice four-team, uh, I guess what we call a lead pack. But when TCU and Utah jumped, BYU was not satisfied with the TV arrangement that the Mountain West had at the time. They had their own regional network. It was called the Mountain. And I'll be honest, I watched a lot of games on that network because it's the only place you could catch these teams in action. And the quality of it was just awful. And BYU was not getting the money they felt like they deserved, the national uh, exposure that they wanted. So when Utah made the jump to the Pac-12 and BYU didn't get an offer to go Power 5, they decided, you know what? We're going to take control of our future. And they negotiated an exclusive rights TV deal with ESPN. Uh, they decided, you know what, we're going to set out on our own and try and follow the independent model that teams like Notre Dame have done. And I think financially, it's actually been a very good move for BYU, considering they're making significantly more than they would have been remaining in the Mountain West. But at the same time, uh, your exposure is great, but your access is limited in terms of national bowl games. You're talking about the fact that had, they, had BYU beaten Coastal Carolina, yeah, there's a chance that they make Fiesta Bowl, but they don't, and they end up in the Boca Raton Bowl, the roofclaim.com Boca Raton Bowl. Uh, it's just kind of an also-ran bowl game. You played UCF, which was fun, but you would have rather been playing a team like Iowa State. There's no doubt about that. So you gave up some access in terms of your postseason options, but the exposure and the money that BYU is making, I think they make that same decision over again. But I think now 10 years down the road, because we're about a decade removed from them making that decision, if BYU could get into a Power 5 conference, they would jump into it tomorrow. I can promise you that. They want into the Power 5, but they're not willing to go back to the G5, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so when uh, the Big 12 comes calling and they they lure BYU and like Cincinnati <laughs> to hey. come. 12. <laughs> I, I can tell you this much. BYU would jump in, no questions asked. They, they would love to be in a Power 5 conference. They want to compete at that level. They aspire to be a Power 5 caliber program as an independent, but they would love nothing more than to be affiliated officially with the Power 5. Yeah, my, my friend actually mentioned that to me, and I was like, BYU? And he was like, yeah, kind of like, you know, the regions of BYU and uh, Utah kind of match politically with like every big 12 school. So like, he's like, it's like actually like a really good fit that way. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. So I can see that. Yeah. We're in the off season. So get ready for this. We call it, we call it BYU uh, big 12 rumor season and it's upcoming. Uh, it seems like annually there's a rumor that pops up somewhere, including BYU as a potential expansion candidate for the big 12. The, the, the bigger storyline about it is BYU and X team that's going to join them, whether it's a Cincinnati, whether it's Boise state, uh, we've heard air force in the past. We've heard Colorado state bringing some of those mountain region teams with them. But it's literally it's an annual thing, and I can, you can set your clock to it. It will happen at some point during the off season. Would there be like a rivalry between BYU and like the the West Virginia Mountaineers, Appalachian versus Rocky? Sure, why not? Let's do it. I, they did play. I know they played. This is probably four-ish years ago. They played a game at FedEx Field out there in Landover, Maryland. Uh, it was a it was just a kind of a one-off game and. Uh, West Virginia ended up winning the game, but it was a fun environment. A lot of both fan bases showed up. So why not? Why not have yeah, Appalachia versus the Rocky mountains or the Wasatch front? Why not? They would have some like weird trophy. 
<laughs> Sweet. I, I think BYU fans would love nothing more. Yeah, that would be awesome. So the biggest story pretty much nationally with BYU right now is Zach Wilson. He's currently the number two prospect by pretty much everyone in the NFL draft. Uh, he's one of those guys that really jumped up draft boards later than everyone else. So there's a little bit of skepticism with him. If I told you a year ago today that Zach Wilson would just leave school early and go to the NFL, what would your reaction be? I would have laughed, honestly. Uh, he was coming off. Uh, he had a, he had a pretty good freshman campaign, but he had labrum surgery on his shoulder that off season, and then broke his thumb midway through that uh, through his sophomore year. And yeah, had you told me a, just a, you go a year ago today, I would have been like. Yeah, that, that's cute. That's funny, but it, but it's exactly what has happened. It's been pretty incredible to watch him kind of fly up draft boards. We kind of be, become this media darling with regards to the NFL draft. So, yeah, it, it's been a pretty stunning rise for him, but it's really cool at the same time. Yeah. Uh, should a team be concerned that he wasn't a captain? So, okay, I actually can clarify this. He was a captain. Uh, so I know that there's that storyline out there, and he was actually a team captain. He wore the captain C on his uniform. That was not just a placeholder for uh, them to say, well, no, he was one. No, he was a captain. Uh, it, I know that that was lost in translation a little bit. BYU has two different structures when it comes to their football program with their leadership on in the football program. They have what they call a leadership council as well as team captains. I think that the the, the, the he was – they told people, I guess the word got out that he was part of that leadership council. And I think it was extrapolated to where he quote unquote, wasn't a team captain, but I can assure you, he was a team captain. Were you guys even sure that he was going to be a starter? So, okay. That was the interesting part about it because he was still dealing, obviously coming off those injuries and he did not have that great of a sophomore campaign. It was a true quarterback battle. Uh, Jaron Hall and Baylor Romney, the two main backups for him, they really battled him for the job. And I've, I've talked to multiple coaches, multiple people around the program who said, yes, this was absolutely a quarterback battle early on in fall camp last year, but Zach did show up and he, he outperformed the other guys. And obviously he did. You saw the season that he put together pretty incredible. And he earned that early on in fall camp and never let off the gas. Yeah. Uh, can you even give us a little bit of insight kind of like who he is as a guy? Because when you talk about NFL quarterbacks, it's, it's different than maybe any other position in sports. Cause it's not just like, Hey, are you talented? It's like, Hey, you know, that people look for that, you know, leadership from that position. Can you kind of tell like, uh, maybe not, I guess you can talk about how he is a leader, but just kind of what kind of guy he is. So Zach comes from an actually extremely successful family, his extended family. He's got uncles who own uh, multiple airlines. His mom is, she's a, she's a fireball. There's no doubt about that. Lisa's mom is absolutely incredible. His dad uh, is an entrepreneur, owns multiple small businesses here in the state of Utah. This is a very driven family and it extends to Zach. Football is his life. He is a football junkie. He watches film all the time. Uh, Aaron Roderick, who is BYU's offensive coordinator now, uh, taking over for Jeff Grimes, but he was the passing game coordinator last year. He liked to tell us all the time in the media that Zach would text him at all hours of the night, and he, he meant it sincerely. 1 a.m., 2 a.m., saying, hey, coach, I saw this play from uh, ex-quarterback in the NFL, whether it was Patrick Mahomes or Matt Ryan, play something he saw on film. And Coach Roderick, he said, 
dude, I'm sleeping. I'm not watching this much film. What, what are you doing? But he football is his life. He, he loves the sport. He wants to be the absolute best that he can be. And he will not rest until he gets to the pinnacle in his mind. And that's been part of the reason why he's looking forward to getting into the NFL here. You mentioned the fact that he's the number two prospect. I think that even fuels him even more that he's not considered a contender for that number one pick. I think that is what this kind of, this young man is. He is driven. He's motivated. He wants to prove people wrong. That's what has kind of been his whole MO, his entire career at BYU. And man, he's made good on his bet on himself so far. Yeah. That's the best pitch I've heard for probably any quarterback prospect this year. Um, would his dad or somebody get mad at you if you bashed him? Uh, sure. I, so, so they're, they're, they're an insular family. They do like to protect their boys. He's the oldest of four boys that are all football players. He's actually got a brother who is a linebacker for the BYU football program right now. Uh, his two younger brothers. Another one is a linebacker who's expected to go division one. And then the youngest brother is also a quarterback similar to Zach and the early returns on him as a youngster. I think he's 13 or 14 are that he is going to be another great quarterback in that family and could be the next Wilson to go to the NFL. I know it's way too early to project that in my opinion, but nonetheless, uh, the family, they do, uh, they do have rabbit ears up. They do and read and hear everything, but my interactions with them, albeit limited have been pretty positive overall. Good. That's good to hear. Uh, so he played a good amount his first two seasons you know, third years, like we said, is really when he popped Yep, and became one of the best quarterbacks in the country. Something going through it that I didn't realize uh, the other times I kind of looked at him. He actually was a pretty good rusher, rushed for 10 touchdowns. Yep. So my question is, was there like a moment? Because you obviously, you know, you said there was a quarterback competition. Was there like a certain moment just watching Zach Wilson this past year where you saw it, where you're watching him and you're like, oh my God, this is different. He has like really stepped up his game. So uh, the moment for me personally was the Louisiana Tech game. Uh, the Bulldogs came to Provo to play in a game. And in that game, Louisiana, Louisiana Tech had had a decent start to the season. They actually had some decent athletes. They had an edge rusher who I think is in this year's NFL draft class. I have to go back and look up his name again, but he was pretty highly thought of. And there was some thought that this might be a pretty stiff test for BYU. And in that game, Zach Wilson came out and just started firing darts all over the field, just making pass after pass after pass. And I'm sitting in the press box covering this game. And I just kind of had this light bulb moment saying, holy smokes, this dude is doing something that, is going to put him in the NFL. He is going to go to the NFL. I, I didn't necessarily know that it was going to happen after the season. He was going to leave early, but I was seeing him make plays, throw passes. As you mentioned, the ability to scramble and score touchdowns when needed. I saw it all come together. And that, that moment, that Louisiana tech game for me was when I was like, okay, yeah, this is a kid who is going to the NFL. He's going places. So there, and I, I would, I think almost any other media member out here that covers BYU probably has a similar moment from this past season. That was like the third or fourth game, right? So pretty early on. It was pretty early on, but you, you could see it. All of a sudden, it clicked, and I, I further, like, kind of going as the season progressed. They played the game at the University of Houston, and Houston was thought to be probably the best, if not the best, team that BYU might face in the regular season at that point. I know Boise State probably would have their argument for that, but then BYU went on to to Houston, and the very first. It was the very first play. It might've been the second play. Uh, Zach Wilson hooks up with Dax Milne on like a 70 yard touchdown uh, pass right to start the game. And you're like, well, okay, here we go. So 
yeah, it, early on in the season against Louisiana Tech was kind of the light bulb moment for me. But as the season progressed, he only got better and better. Okay, this is the moment where uh, Zach Wilson's dad's going to come back and, and <laughs> respond to me now. Okay. So kind of going through BYU, and this was just my thought during the season, and you can feel free to like uh, just swat this away. It seemed like it was a pretty easy schedule. Uh, for the most part, where like even like, you know, because I knew BYU was doing well, knew they were winning games. I was kind of going through it. And again, you know, what does a, you know, a four and four record really mean in in the COVID season? And then even like I turned on the uh, the Boise State game, which was because you're like, oh, wait, two ranked teams like Friday night, I believe it was. Yeah, and I, was yeah. I was like, oh, wait, I'm going to watch this. This is going to be like really interesting. And then I believe I turned it on. BYU, I believe, was beating them pretty good. And then the announcers were like, yeah, uh, Boise State has like their quarterback out with COVID, their running back, and then like a bunch of their defensive players. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to learn anything from this game. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you. The, the schedule for BYU was soft. There is no arguing that because they did not play a power five team on that schedule. I, I can, I, but I will add this caveat to that is the fact that BYU, their original schedule for 2020 had six power five teams on it. So they were expected to play half their games against power five competition, but then COVID-19 happened and we all know what happened with schedules. They all fell apart. BYU at one point in August had two games scheduled. They had Houston and a game against FCS level North Alabama. Those were the only two games they had on their schedule and they pieced it all back together to get to 12 games overall. So Yes, the schedule was soft. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But I, I think BYU did the absolute best they could do given the circumstances they found themselves in. Yeah, they sent the trucks up to uh, Coastal Carolina and played on their teal field. <laughs> yeah, they, the, the, the whole thing, Zach wearing that headband that said anytime, anywhere, any place, that was the mantra BYU kind of took on this season. They they. Uh, Kalani Satake actually talked about this, that BYU for a time there before the Pac-12 announced they were going to come back and play uh, the, and the Mountain West was coming back to play. BYU was the only team for a thousand miles around themselves who planned to play football in the fall. They had nobody around them. The closest team that was planning on playing was the UTEP Miners in El Paso, Texas. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Just the geographical logistics of it, of having to go like east every game, just thinking about it again. Um, and also, he continues the legacy of Jim McMahon by wearing a headband with something written on it. <laughs> Trust me, there there have been all kinds of comparisons made between him and McMahon. I know that there were some Chicago Bears uh, people out there who were hoping that, hey, maybe another BYU quarterback could come here and uh, resurrect our legacy. But it looks like Zach's going to go a lot higher than the Bears are picking. Yeah, yeah, I thought that too. I know like a good amount of Bears fans. Um, and I was thinking about like BYU quarterbacks the other day. And I was thinking, I'm like, because I, I, again, I love Jim McMahon. And yeah. I was thinking, I'm like, was McMahon like the best quarterback? And then I was like, oh, wait, no, Steve Young. Steve Young, what am I thinking? <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. Funny enough, in college, most people would have picked Jim McMahon. He set 80 NCAA records during his BYU career. Yeah. Uh, Steve Young had a great BYU career. There's no doubt about that. But if you were to go on just the, the pro careers, yeah, Steve Young is the better of the two. There's no doubt. Yeah, a absolutely. And then, um, yeah, yeah, and Steve Young had like a really weird like uh, path for his entire career, where oh, he's yeah. in the NFL and then he's like a backup in Tampa. Well, then you you want a fun anecdote about that? Funny enough, go ahead. You know who taught Steve Young how to throw a ball correctly? Um, you? No, Jim oh. McMahon. Funny enough. 
uh, so Steve Young showed up. Uh, he played in the option in high school, didn't necessarily really know how to throw a football correctly, showed up to BYU, and they're a team that threw the ball all over the field. And he, at one point, was an eighth-string quarterback. He was uh, being asked to move to safety to play defensive back. Didn't want to do it. And Jim McMahon taught him how to throw a ball correctly. He kind of studied what Jim McMahon did in practice, modeled his game after it. And both of them made the NFL, both of them won Super Bowl. So I think it worked out. Yeah, it really did. Uh, and do you have any other, or do you have any, I guess, Jim McMahon stories? Cause just reading about him, just him and BYU are just like, you know, polar opposites in how they got paired together. So you have any like uh, legends of Jim McMahon just at BYU? So funny enough, you actually can go back and listen to this. I know you, you've listened to some of my podcasts. If you go back uh, to Locked On Cougars in mid-December, I actually interviewed Jim McMahon. I had a one-on-one conversation with him. You can go back and listen to that. Uh, in that interview, he talked about the fact that he didn't go to much school while he was at BYU. He, he freely admitted, I was there to play football. That's what that's what I was there for. And I was like, good on you, sir, because you were a pretty incredible football player. But there was actually a pretty famous story. Lavelle Edwards, who was his head coach, uh, he talked about one time that Lavelle Edwards uh, realized that Jim McMahon was in uh, in danger of not being eligible to play. So he legitimately told Jim McMahon, come to my office. I had a desk set up in his office, told Jim McMahon to sit down, and he sat there until he caught up on all of his schoolwork. Whether that is uh, an apocryphal addition to the story, there are multiple other stories about Jim McMahon uh, just being a legend, driving around Provo. Uh, There's even a famous story about him uh, motorboating on Utah Lake, which is a local lake here. I'm I'm sitting, I, I could be at Utah Lake in about five minutes, where he may or may not have been uh, water skiing naked. So, wow. They're, they're, trust me, and I'm barely touching the iceberg of stories of Jim McMahon at BYU. You can go on for like four hours. Oh, trust me. I, I need to do that. I actually need to do a special edition of like a BYU podcast just to talk about the Jim McMahon era and stories about it. That would be fascinating. I'm glad too that Jim McMahon's uh, loved at BYU because just kind of the, you know, being a little bit uh, against the grain, a little bit of a wild card. I'm glad to know he's still loved there. He is. He is beloved. I can tell you that much. He is like, yeah, I know he is like the antithesis of what you'd expect to have come out of BYU. I know he surprised the Chicago Bears when he showed up for his first like media session uh, after being drafted by them as he's drinking a brewski after getting out of the limo. Uh, It was kind of, I heard there were like people in the Chicago Bears were like, hold on, what's this guy doing? He's from BYU, but he, he is a beloved figure in the BYU football. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, and even with him at the Bears, he would like uh, he he drove Ditka and everyone there crazy because oh. he, he would get in the huddle and he would just like call his own plays and he would just do his own thing and everyone would just get mad at him. But he's just like, I just scored a touchdown. What are you talking about? Not not to toot my own horn, but you should go listen to that podcast I did okay. with him because he absolutely he actually acknowledges the fact he's like the the Bears offense held me back. It was his opinion that it held him back. Yes, he did he did audible all the time. Wow. Yeah, that's fun. All right. Uh, last BYU question, then we'll transition to Utah. Okay. So even though BYU got upset in the first round of the NCAA tournament, are BYU fans bragging about the fact that they're the last team to beat Gonzaga? <laughs> they should, I suppose. Uh, funny enough. No, the, uh, BYU has been chasing Gonzaga as a member of the West Coast Conference since they joined the conference. BYU, uh, the Gonzaga 
West Coast Conference deal for BYU came about when BYU went independent in football. They needed to find a place to put their other sports, so they went to the West Coast Conference, and they've been chasing Gonzaga's shadow ever since then. And they have not caught them. They've beat them on multiple occasions. And, yeah, they probably should take some pride in saying, yes, we were the last team, the most recent team to have beaten Gonzaga. But they gave everything they had in the West Coast Conference tournament uh, in the lead-up to this year's NCAA tournament. And uh, they actually held a 10-point lead at halftime in that West Coast Conference tournament final against Gonzaga. Yeah, did you watch that game? Yeah. Well, the Bulldogs came out and just absolutely steamrolled the rest of the way. And Mark Few, their head coach, talked about after the game, he said, we needed that. We needed that as a team. We needed to have a team really stick it to us, and we responded the right way. But he said, we needed that. And you've seen as they made this run now to the Final Four, they were my pick to win it all, and I'm sticking with it. That and UCLA, the team that beat BYU. They're both in the Final Four. It's a pretty pretty stellar run that UCLA has had themselves. It's been really cool to see Mick Cronin and those guys do their thing. Yeah, it has. Mick Cronin. Um, So let's transition to Utah. So Utah football, Kyle Whittingham has been very successful there. Utah, just looking back on it, not that much of a storied football history. You know, really until it didn't really take off until Urban Meyer was there. And he was only there for like a year or two. So most of the success has been with Kyle Whittingham. Been there for 16 years, uh, 134 wins to 66 losses, 11 and three in bowl games. They were 13 and 0 in 2008. Um, They were also undefeated in 2004. That was also Urban Meyer. Kyle Whittingham's given uh, credit for winning that bowl game. Yep. So just going through it again. Why has he been able to stay or why has he stayed chosen to stay in Utah? Because I assume a lot of schools probably would have tried to come and offer him, especially considering, you know, they didn't even jump to the Pac-12. Utah didn't until uh, 2011. So he uh, played football at BYU. Uh, His dad was a coach at both BYU and the University of Utah. And Kyle has always valued uh, continuity and being stable and in coaching it's, it's not a stable profession, but he is, if you talk to him about it, he, he points to the fact that all of his kids and every single one of them went to the same elementary school, the same junior high, the same high school. He has enjoyed a 20, was it, were we at 25 years? Cause he was an assistant coach for yeah. almost a decade before taking over as head coach. He points to that as being a big chief reason of why he has wanted to stay here in Utah. He loves this state. Uh, He's a guy who has embraced it. He was born here. He played high school football here. He played at BYU. He loves being from Utah. He loves representing the University of Utah, their football program. And And this is just me speculating on this. I'm of the opinion that Kyle thinks he can truly do everything that he wants to accomplish in his coaching career. And he can do it from right essentially at home here in Salt Lake City. And He's been an institution. He's the winningest coach in Utah football history. He's the greatest head coach in Utah football history, in my opinion. Absolutely. And it, it's it's really, really cool to see what he has built. And he, he's done it piece by piece. There's no doubt. Did he almost leave in 2014? He has had more programs come after him than you would than you would imagine. And a lot of them don't a lot of the reports don't get out there, but any successful coach has got programs who are chasing him. And we've heard rumors of programs all over the country, Florida, UCLA, uh, just to name two that I know of that have been named in the past of programs who have kicked the tires on Kyle Whittingham. Uh, he's reportedly even had NFL interest at different points. So 
I don't know how seriously he is considered in terms of he has considered leaving, but he has had multiple opportunities and so far he's turned them all down. So what I was reading today and all of this might've just been speculation. It might not have even any of it might not have been true. So 2014, uh, kind of got into a little bit of like contract negotiations with, um, with the athletic director, kind of like, you know, really wasn't bidding enough to keep his assistants like the, uh, uh, Sataki, the, uh, the current coach at BYU. BYU's head coach, yeah. Him and another guy left to go to Oregon State to be assistants there. And that was kind of like, that's where I got that from, where he might have been upset with the program. And then I read that uh, he almost would have like maybe even jumped to BYU at that point. So he actually had the option to, to go to BYU when he originally had the opportunity, when he was presented the opportunity to be the head coach at Utah after Urban Meyer left Utah, BYU had a head coaching opening at the exact same time. And I can tell you this much, knowing what I know of that uh, all these years later, he agonized over that decision because like I said, he played at BYU. He was, a, he was the whack defensive player of the year, his senior year for BYU in the mid 1980s. So he really, really went back and forth in terms of, do I want to be at BYU? Do I remain at Utah? And he ultimately chose the Utes. And yes, the, the contract deal did come up in, the, in 2014, and there were some legs to it. He absolutely was hoping to get more money for his assistance. He obviously was not satisfied with his contract situation. But in my opinion, I think he had little intention of actually leaving Utah. He just wanted to make sure that he was getting what he thought was a fair deal for himself. And Who's to say you get paid what you feel that you're worth, whatever they'll pay. That's what you're worth. And he is making really good money now. And he is loving life. I can tell you that much. He has a great, great gig with the university of Utah. I'm glad to hear that, that he's loyal to Utah. Cause I'm hoping that Matt Campbell stays in my life for like 25 years. Well, that's the thing. Matt Campbell, I hear all the time is like, well, he's rumored with this job. He's rumored with that job. And I've actually, I got to give Matt Campbell credit because he is stuck with the Cyclones when a lot of coaches would have jumped ship right away. And that, I think that's a really cool thing. And I, I'm with you. I'd love to see Matt Campbell build a juggernaut out of the Cyclones. Yeah. It's a uh, Iowa state football on a, or maybe it's Cyclones football on Instagram. Like they'll release like these like uh, hype videos and they'll give you just like a little bit of a snapshot of him, like giving a speech to his players. And like uh-huh. get that little snapshot and you're like, oh my God, I get it. I get why he's good. He is just such like a master motivator. And I think that's, what's really great about that is that he's not necessarily like a specialist of like, you know, Hey, we're going to have this like intricate offensive system. That's how we're going to do it. It's just literally like a culture, which is what I really like, but I don't think we need to talk about Iowa state that much. Um, so pack 12, let's transition to that. So what is your reaction to the Pac-12 being the best conference in the men's NCAA tournament? I'm about as stunned as anybody out there. Like, going into this tournament, I was like, yeah, the Pac-12, whatever. But they have been lights out. And it's been incredible to watch UCLA go from the the first four to the final four, uh, to see three Pac-12 teams make the Elite Eight. It would have been four had they not had a head-to-head matchup between USC and Oregon. It just... Man, it's been an incredible, incredible run, but it's something I think that the Pac-12 needs. They needed some good publicity, and this definitely has given them that. Yeah, kind of my thing with all that was like, well, people weren't giving the Pac-12 respect. I'm like, well, there's a reason for that. You know, Pac-12 did kind of have a reputation for a while of just like losing all of their games in the tournament. Now they're winning all of their games. Um, UCLA was one of the last four in, you know, for a reason. They were on like a four-game losing streak heading into the tournament. 
And then even Oregon State, who had to go on a miracle run to win the tournament, if UCLA at the end of that Oregon State game in the Pac-12 tournament, if UCLA hits their free throws, Oregon State's not in the tournament. They don't go to the Elite Eight. So that was kind of my thing. I'm like, all right, let's let's calm down a little bit here than like pretending that like everyone was just wrong about the Pac-12 because the stuff that we've seen in the tournament's a little bit of it. You know, it's not what we saw for the regular season. Yeah. No, there's no doubt about that, but it's been really cool to see. It's been a little bit of a resurgence. They're obviously looking for a new commissioner right now. And uh, uh, we live in Pac-12 country here in Salt Lake City with Utah being a member of the conference. It was really interesting because they, they actually just fired Larry Kraskoviak, their head coach. Uh, and there are people out there who are saying, well, hey, maybe the Pac-12 is actually better than we all thought. And maybe Larry should have been given a pass once again. But ultimately, they made the decision to fire him. They hired Craig Smith from Utah State. And they're off and rolling again. But, yeah, it sure looks like the Pac-12 was a lot better than anybody gave him credit for. Yeah. I mean, it's been a really crazy tournament, which is, the tournament's crazy every year. Yeah. Um, but let's switch to talk about the Utah Jazz. So I think this is something that's really unique with like, uh, I guess it's kind of the case in most professional sports where sometimes, you know, some leagues will have like teams where, you know, the Utah Jazz in Salt Lake, Salt Lake City, Utah, you know, they're the team. There's not a baseball team. There's not a football team. Yeah. Uh, is there just like a increase especially if they're good too that's the other thing like the utah jazz are actually good they have a good history they win never able to like really you know capture that championship but i mean most teams don't uh so kind of like can you describe like how the people of utah salt lake city you know really love their utah jazz so i can tell you this much as i mentioned earlier on that the byu and utah rivalry is about as fierce as anything as i i've ever experienced i'll tell you this there is one thing that both BYU and Utah fans rally around. And it's the Utah Jazz. They 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 can agree on one thing, and it, it's the Jazz. And this this team, like you mentioned, when they're good, there is no bet. There is no hotter ticket. There's no bigger team. There's no bigger storyline. It is the story in the state, and they're the number one team in the West right now. And I can tell you this much: we spend about seventy five percent of my radio shows right now talking about the Jazz, and for good reason. Yeah. Uh... Donovan Mitchell have potential to be the best jazz player ever. Oh, man, uh, you got to outdo two guys in John Stockton and Carl Malone, who had two legendary runs here in this state. And who's to say that Rudy Gobert is not going to be right, th- right up there with him as well. But there have been a lot of good jazz players. Jeff Hornacek, as you mentioned, you're an Iowa State guy. He had a great run here as well with the Utah Jazz. He's absolutely beloved here. Yeah, so the the – Donovan Mitchell is going to be a fan favorite for however long he's in Utah. The hope is that he spends his entire career here. There's no doubt. Yeah. I think that would be great. You know, I love it. If stars can actually stay in one spot, like, you know, Damian Lillard's making a good example of that. Yep. Up Portland. And even that, you know, I wish some of the guys would have stayed. In, I wish Durant would have stayed in Oklahoma city, even though I'm understand that he leaves, didn't want him to leave to go to golden state. And that's like, I get mad at people sometimes They're like, well, why is everyone mad at Kevin Durant leaving? I'm like, we're not mad that he left. We're mad that he went to the Golden State Warriors who just won 73 games. <laughs> he could have went to like almost every other team and we would have been okay. Yeah, but, but yeah, it's really good. Donovan Mitchell's uh, good there. Do, you know, kind of what's the expectations for this team? First in the West right now? I believe they're the, still. 
the expectation is they're going to make a run at going to the NBA finals. That that's the simple fact of the matter. Uh, the jazz have been to the finals twice before they lost to Michael Jordan's bulls teams in 97 and 98. Most people will remember those series, but they want be what the, the, the jazz, they simply, they want to get back to the mountaintop. They, they want to get back to the finals. There's a lot of belief on this team right now that they can compete with anybody uh, there, man, you look at like the nets with Durant, Harden and Irving and you say, man, that could be an incredible, incredibly tough matchup in the finals, but uh, jazz fans, the Utah jazz themselves, they are looking at, at right now at the finals are bust essentially. Yeah, well, they, you know, they have a really good team too. Mike Conley at times last year looked, was like, oh my God, what's happening here? This doesn't look good. He's kind of revived himself. Uh, you have Bogdanovich, you know, you have a bunch of guys that can create offense. Ingles, who's one of the, you know, most fun players in the league. You know, Gobert, who's a rim protector, yeah. uh, monster down there. Donovan, uh, Donovan Mitchell, you know, a bunch of guys off the bench. George Niang. Oh, how about we do this now? Can you talk about George Niang and his nickname? Oh, yeah. So, uh, of course, George Niang, he's actually become kind of this cult hero here in Utah. Really has been a, a fun player to watch. Uh, it's kind of been a fan-driven thing, and nicknames are always all the rage in pro sports. Uh, those of you guys who are out there who are Iowa State fans may not know this. Maybe you do. His nickname out here is called The Minivan, of all things. Uh, so uh, David Block, who's the play-by-play voice, uh, when George Nian hits like a big three, he'll be like, hey, grab the triplets, toss them in. It's The Minivan. It's, it's a pretty fun thing they're doing. Yeah, he's a... Uh... Maybe you, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. He kind of had his famous lore at Iowa State where it was he was a really uh, interesting career at Iowa State. So he comes in as a freshman. He's a good recruit. He went to the same high school as Nerland's Noel, yeah. uh, which at the time, you know, we thought was a lot more impressive than it actually turned out to be. But he was really good just kind of, you know, with his post moves because, you know, he had seven foot Nerlens Noel and he's like six, seven, six, eight or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then he also had times too where you watch him at Iowa State where you're like, uh, oh, wait a second. This guy's like a point forward now or point center. And even there's like an Iowa State thing where probably we call this like the, mo- the biggest what if in our school's history. So was it, I believe it was his sophomore season okay. We make it to the sweet 16. But in the first round of the playoff or the tournament, George Niang breaks his foot. Oh, geez. Okay. So we make it to the Sweet 16, and we were the three seed, and we play UConn. And that's one of the, that's the second, I think that's the Kevin Ali UConn that ended up winning it all. Gotcha. Okay. We yeah. played this really, really close game against them. And George Niang was our center. He, he was the team's center. He was the tallest player. So instead, we like our tallest player was like 6'6 when George was out. But we all believe that like we would have made a really big run if he wouldn't have broken his foot on a on some guy stepping on his foot, which was really sad. He's become a fan favorite here, man. He's not the flashiest player, but he works effectively in that Utah Jazz offense. There's no doubt. He's become a good three point shooter for you guys. He's really worked really, he's worked really hard at that. Yeah, absolutely. I always like watching him just because I watched him so many years at Iowa State. Like he switches on, he's like guarding LeBron. Yeah, no, it, it, it's been a really cool story. There's a few of those guys on this Utah Jazz team who have seemingly come out of nowhere and really transformed themselves, and George is right there near the top of that list. You mentioned the 97-98 uh, the uh, finals earlier. What's the Utah perspective of the poisoned pizza? 
Well, funny enough, uh, so last summer when the whole weird COVID lockdown, they, they did the whole last dance series and whatnot, the radio station I work for, well, uh, we, we had the guy who apparently made the pizza call into our radio station, do an interview, and he swears up and down that he was the only Bulls fan here in the state of Utah. He got the call, and he was the only person. He swears on, he swore on everything that he was the only person who touched that pizza. So he he thinks it wasn't the poison pizza. He thinks there was something else in play. And there's all there's all these things about Jordan was hungover. Jordan got sick. It was legitimately the flu. There are other people you say he absolutely was poisoned or it was food poisoning. I don't know if we'll ever get a, a, a true story, but this guy called in and he said, I was the guy who made that pizza. I delivered it. I, I, I handled every single point of making that pizza. And I can tell you, and he swore up and down that the pizza was not the problem. We have to get some like pay stubs from that guy to make sure that he's not lying. This is just like, I, yeah, I did it. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was pretty stunning to hear that. Hey, we have the guy who made Michael Jordan's pizza on line one. It was like, huh? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of conflicting stories with that. And the thing at the last day, it's like Michael Jordan just lied a bunch of times in it and people were just fine with it. They're like, oh, it's just MJ. He's just he's just, he's just doing his thing. But yeah, that, that was really funny there with the whole uh, pizza thing. Do Utah fans kind of look at that as like, dang, that was our chance? Well, yes and no. Uh, I think that they... They, they relish uh, having the opportunity to watch Michael Jordan. I grew up a jazz fan. I'm born and raised here in the state of Utah. Yeah. So the jazz have been my NBA team my entire life. And I lived and died with those NBA finals teams. I was in, let's see, I was in fifth grade in 97, sixth grade in 98. So I was a young pup, but I was living and dying through those runs. And I would have loved nothing more to see the jazz win an NBA championship, but my favorite player, of all time is Michael Jordan. So there was part of me who was torn being like, okay, I, I want the jazz to win, but this is also like the greatest player I've ever seen in my entire life. And I probably will ever see in my life. And there's arguments that LeBron's right up there with him. I, I get all that, but I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't just dig up hate for Michael Jordan because like I said, he was my favorite player. So you were fine with him getting the push off on Russell. Okay. Okay. That, that one's a little bit of a sore point though. <laughs> Do you think it was a push off or it was a push off, but they're never going to call that. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. It's just, it, it's one of those things like, yes, by, by the letter of the law, if you read the NBA rule book, yes, that's a push off, but I'll be honest. I watched Carl Malone and John Stockton do that exact same thing about a thousand times over in their careers. So, you know, it, it is what it is. Yeah. That's the amazing thing with like the Utah basketball. If you look at the record books, cause I'm fascinated by NBA records because the baseball ones are just all ruined. They're all ruined. So my, my obsessions with the NBA records, sure. you look at the NBA records for points and assists points, Carl Malone's number two, LeBron's probably going to pass him in a year or two, or I don't sure. know, but he'll, he'll pass him. Um, and then Stockton's number one in assists. Yeah. So that's just really incredible that like, you know, they were able to compile all that. And most of them are like together. Yeah. Like a lot of those Stockton assists are probably from Malone. And a lot of those points are probably from, Oh, they are. They were they were intertwined for 20 years playing together, roughly, and they their records literally go hand in hand with one another. It was uh, people called it boring basketball, the Stockton to Malone pick and roll. But if you can't stop it, why change it? Yeah, it, it sucks that Carl Malone has like the legacy of being like the 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 best player to never win a ring. Tim Barkley and a few other guys, but 
John Stockton's on that list too. Yeah, Stockton is too. Stockton <laughs> Malone takes like all the heat for Stockton. We forget about that. He does. Yeah, Stockton's like up there with Nash and mm-hmm. uh, all those guys. But yeah, hoping to see Utah, you know, have a really good run this postseason. I'm rooting for them. I, I'd love to see them, you know, beat a few teams. You know, maybe play the Suns in the second round and let the LA teams battle each other out. Go Bear, yeah. like bully DeAndre Ayton. That'd be fun. That'd be that'd be a ton of fun. I'm thinking about that now. That'd be an interesting matchup because you'd have like Conley, uh, uh, Conley, uh. Chris, Chris Paul, yeah, Devin uh, Booker, Donovan Mitchell, yeah, yeah, Devin Booker, Donovan Mitchell, just watch each other score, not play defense against each other. <laughs> I can tell you this much: Donovan Mitchell would relish the opportunity to to make uh, make Devin Booker's life a little more difficult. He actually loves when he gets an opportunity to play against guys like that. Has he been playing with like a little bit more of an edge? Kind of, I feel like Utah just kind of really just really got like shanked the last like a few months with the Shaq interview. And then, you know, the thing with the all-star game with uh, them getting drafted last, which I was like, all right, I understand go bear a little bit. He just blocked shots and dunks, but Donovan Mitchell really getting drafted that late. This seemed weird. He he's definitely playing with a chip on his shoulder right now. He's actually playing some of the best basketball of his career over the past 10 or so games. He's averaging just over 33 points a game. He's a career high in assists, career high in rebounds. He his effective field goal percentage shooting uh, from beyond the arc. All of it is up. And you're right. He, he has taken a lot of the criticism that he has endured this year. He's channeled it and he's playing some of the best basketball of his young career so far. Why aren't people talking about him as more of an MVP candidate? I think it's because he, he, there are nights that he has dominant outings but doesn't put up monster statistics. Uh, going back just the other night, they played against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Well, Donovan came out and had 16 points in the first quarter. And you're like, oh, wow, he could be on his way to a career night tonight if he, if he pushes down on the accelerator. Well, he played, I think, maybe a minute in the fourth quarter of that game. Quinn Snyder, their head coach, lifted all of the starters and put the backups in. And Donovan finished, I think, with – I think 19 points overall, a pretty quiet night, all things considered how it looked early on, but he he's a guy who he's not, he could go out and chase statistics. If he wanted to, he could do what a guy like James Harden probably is doing. He'd go out and notch a bunch of points and notch a bunch of assists, notch a bunch of rebounds if he wanted to, but he also understands that, Hey, I'm playing with my guys. I've got a good team here. We've got three different guys who can operate this offense with Mike Conley and Joe Ingles on the wing as well. Uh, and I think he's he understands that, hey, if I win championships, that's all that matters. My legacy will be secure at that point. Um, you know, James Harden, you mentioned him. He probably wouldn't want to stay in Utah. But do you think Donovan Mitchell has like a good chance to stay in Utah's entire career? That's the million dollar question I think many people are asking themselves. He, he has made no indication so far during his time as a member of the Utah Jazz that he wants to go anywhere else. Uh, but you, ne- you never know. Uh, he'll, ha- he'll hit free agency. I think he's got five years remaining. Uh, he had that rookie ex- max extension they signed him to. So he's got another, at least another five years playing for the Utah Jazz. Then he'll have a decision to make, obviously, if he wants to re-up here in Utah. But he has ingratiated himself into this community. You see him out there all the time. Well, I guess before COVID, COVID yeah. kind of ruined everything for everybody. But before that, you could find him at all kinds of events. He would go out to community parties. He went to a pool party randomly that somebody invited him to on Twitter in his early days here in Utah. He just, oh, you guys having a pool party? Sweet, I'll show up. And he rolled up and had a great time with a bunch of random people on Instagram and Twitter. So he is a guy who has embraced living here in this state. And the hope is, yes, that he finishes his entire career as a jazz man. 
Yeah, I think I really liked uh, teams like Utah, too, because I've been kind of working on this theory where it's, you know, I feel like we try and like point out great organizations, uh, great GMs or something like that. You know, you're the GM, you know, and like Hakeem Olajuwon sitting there with the number one pick or if you like luck out and Magic Johnson's number one pick, just drafting that guy doesn't make you a great GM. That's what made the Lakers great in those 80s runs. It was, you know, finding a guy like Michael Cooper. It was, you know, drafting AC Green, you know, late in the first round. It was finding that stuff. And you look at the Utah team, like I feel like a lot of teams now, like, oh, we have to tank. We have to get those top picks. Like Donovan Mitchell is the guy that fell in that draft. Rudy Gobert was drafted really late. And uh, maybe you can go off on this here in a minute. Wasn't there like a thing early on where we weren't sure if like he could run? He was like just really awkward and they kind of had to like reteach him how to walk and stuff like that. He's a he was a pretty gangly dude when he was drafted by the Utah Jazz. They actually uh, bought the 27th pick from the Denver Nuggets for about three million dollars, if I recall correctly. It was just it was a cash deal. Like we'll pay you three million dollars. Let's have this pick, and they picked him. And yes, Rudy had a lot of things that he needed to work on, and he played in the what was then the D League, now the G League for a while, and became. Uh, a guy who was obsessed with honing his craft. He he wants to be one of the great big men in NBA history, and he's worked towards that. He d- probably doesn't have the offensive chops to really become, I guess, a legend, but he's truly, in my opinion, the best defensive player individually in the NBA right now. He, he, he It's just incredible. His footwork, like you mentioned, it was pretty bad early on in his career, but he's worked on it, and now he's got impeccable for, footwork. He's able to to guard guys out on the perimeter as well as he is on the interior. And it's pretty impressive to see what he is doing. Uh, but yes, the, the, the early days of Rudy Gobert, it was like, okay, this guy is seven one, but are we sure he can even play? Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, I was hearing about that. Cause I, I don't remember the early days of him. It's just kind of like, remember him coming on the scene four or five years ago. And like, Oh wait, this guy is like huge and he's got muscles and he's yeah. blocking shots and he's a force in the middle. Really fun to see, but uh, going back on that, you know, uh, my point I was making earlier, you know, finding guys like Joe Ingles, uh, George Niang, who we talked about earlier, was the last pick in the draft. Yeah. Uh, you know, people like that, I- even like, you know, Denver Nuggets, uh, you know, in a state over where, you know, Jokic, which I think sometimes maybe if you find Jokic in the second round, that's probably more luck than, you know, sure. having thrown into that. But, yeah. you know, drafting Jamal Murray late, uh, Monte Morris, another Iowa State guy found him in the second round so um i guess how do you think that structure gets into place where utah is able to find you know talent later in the draft i think the biggest thing is just having a good uh, a good front office as well as a good coaching staff who is who is hell-bent on development that's what quinn snyder his whole mo is developing his guys uh, these guys watch film all of the time. They have individual coaches that watch film with them. Uh, Joe Ingles, funny enough, has been coming on my radio show weekly for seven years. He's done it for seven years. He has missed wow. one week in that entire run, and it just was a happenstance with the schedule for the Utah Jazz. And he's talked about the fact that he was cut by the Los Angeles Clippers. They, he was the last guy cut it, it, during training camp, and he had literally never heard of Utah, Salt Lake City, or anything Uh, The Utah Jazz, Dennis Lindsay, their GM at the time, calls him up and says, hey, we want you to come to Utah and check things out here. And now Joe Ingles is playing on a $60 million deal. He says it's it's an absolutely incredible story of himself. Uh, He he thought at one point after he got cut by the Clippers, he's like, well, uh, I guess I'm going back maybe to play home in Australia. Am I going to play overseas once again, maybe back in Europe? But 
it it, is absolutely incredible. They have found a lot of guys. Royce O'Neal was a guy who was a Baylor product who was playing overseas for a couple of years that the Jazz brought in and thought, you know what, let's see what we can do. And now he's a starting four four man on this team. And there are so many stories of this. You mentioned the Nuggets. They've done similar things. It's really, really cool to see what a, a stable ownership, a stable front office, and a coaching staff that likes to develop guys, what they can do when they put their minds to it. Yeah. The, is there any fears that the new owner is going to like just because I feel like when, you know, billionaires, they're so successful at everything that they do. Every like, you know, you get that rich yeah. just doing business and stuff. You know, everything you do, you've done perfectly. So like a lot of them like will buy a sports team and they'll be like, oh, I'm going to like run this exactly how I do everything else. So is there like a fear that like he's going to like be like, uh, you know, maybe we can uh, trade Rudy Gobert for somebody or maybe we can make a move here, you know, yeah. kind of like that new owner syndrome. So Ryan Smith is the new owner of the Utah Jazz, and I'll give you a little bit of the background on him. He is a guy who was a born and raised Utah guy like myself, and he is a diehard Jazz fan, diehard in, in just the, the, the diest of the diehards out there. This is a guy, uh, funny enough, who sold, who scalped tickets out in front of what was then the Delta Center. It's now called Vivint Arena here in Salt Lake City. He scalped tickets as a young man uh, just because he loved the Jazz that much. So I can tell you this much. Everything he is going to do and everything he's done so far in his short run as owner so far has been to help this team win. He wants them to win a championship. He is not running this as a business. This for him is his, his toy. He, he wants everything good for this franchise and he's investing in it. So yeah, I, I have no qualms about him coming in and, and not taking care of this. He, he's going to, he sees this as a, as an opportunity to put a championship up there and he wants nothing more than that. Just tell him to not take any calls from Daryl Morey. <laughs> well, well, I'll make sure to let him know next time. I, he's, he's technically my boss. So I, I'll make sure to pass that along to him. <laughs> Be like, uh, can we trade Donovan Mitchell for, uh, um, uh, uh, who's that rookie that they have? Yeah. Oh, nah. the rookie on the jazz this year. Or no, no, no. The, uh, the, the, the Sixers. Oh, um, I don't Maxie. think about. Yeah, that's who it is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, they trade Daryl would call be like, how about we get Donovan Mitchell for Maxi and uh, a lottery protected first to call it good. I, I, I can tell you the Utah jazz would say, yeah, no, thanks. Click. I, <laughs> I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Are they one of the franchises that's really kind of jumped in and embraced analytics? They have, they, they've done it since Quinn Snyder and Dennis Lindsay kind of took over the operations. They came in together Dennis is the GM and then uh, Quinn shortly thereafter is the head coach. They have embraced analytics. They've embraced film. Uh, they believe in those things. They believe in the numbers and it's borne out that it works for them. Yeah. Do you think it helps that uh, some of the players are actually, let me shift off of this. Um, let's see. Sorry, I'm just blanking on something here. Um, how about we go back to Utah rivalries? Is is there like a, a rivalry with like the Jazz and anybody? Is there a team where like they come to town and you're like, oh, geez, these guys, we got to, you know, we got to really give it to them this time. It's been the Lakers. It's been mm-hmm. the Lakers for a long, long time. But uh, recently, obviously, the runs that they've had in the playoffs against the Nuggets of late have brought a little more of a rivalry feel to that. And the Clippers, I think, as well, have become a little more of a, of a rival. But the, the Jazz, arch enemy number one in this state is the Los Angeles Lakers. There is no doubt about that. 
Yeah, you're right about that. I feel like everyone just kind of has a thing for the Lakers where they're, they're not alone in that. I can tell you that much, but they, they, they despise the Lakers here in jazz nation. Yeah. We're like the, the, the Spurs didn't even do a Kawhi trade with them because, because they were the Lakers. So they sent Kawhi to Toronto for like nothing, pretty much DeMar yeah. DeRozan, Jacob or Jakob pot Pertle. Pertle, Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah, it, it, it's, the, the Lakers, yes, I get that they're they're not very well liked around the league, but especially here in Utah, like it, it it's it's a special special type of what I call sports hate for the Lakers. Yeah, and I think Utah really benefits from their. We talked about you know being in one city and having this one team. I think a lot of teams like that really benefit, and it's going to really benefit Utah if we can get fans in arenas come playoff time, especially if they're able to get home court advantage because. You know, they're going to have four games in a packed, like, you know, arena there. And Utah fans like to go crazy and like to make noise. So that was even, you know, going back to the Jordan stuff, that was the other reason why part of that was so impressive with the Bulls winning, you know, with that game there, uh, just because the crowd was just crazy. Yeah, they're already, they've got 5,000 fans in the arena right now. But yeah, the hope is that at some point here in the relatively near future, they can get almost a capacity crowd. They would love nothing more than to have that going into the playoffs. Good, good. Love to hear it. So that's Jake Hatch, uh, Utah BYU insider, works with the radio station there, is going to pass on some messages to the Utah Jazz owner for me. (laughs) We're going to hear some, you know, hate from Zach Wilson's dad. And uh, hopefully BYU and Iowa State uh, get matched up at a, a New Year's Six Bowl next year. It would be a lot of fun. I'd look forward to it. Yeah, go ahead and plug your stuff again here real quick. Yeah, so you can follow my my work. Most of it goes through my personal Twitter feed at Jacob C. Hatch. Uh, you also can follow the podcast that I do, Locked on Cougars or Locked on Utes. They're available on every podcast provider out there. And then my day-to-day work, yeah, the Zone Sports Network with the Utah Jazz flagship station out here in Salt Lake City. Not hard to find. And feel free to reach out anytime if I can help you guys out with any questions with regards to Utah, the Jazz, the Cougars, the Utes. I got it all covered for you. Yeah, I'll definitely be listening. I'm definitely going to go back and listen to that Jim McMahon one. Do it, man. It, it was a ton of fun. To, he's a personal hero of mine. It was really cool to catch up with him. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks a lot for coming on, Jake. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you, Jake. Once again, if you want to go follow Jake on Twitter, his handle there is Jacob C. Hatch. You'll get all of his information on his podcast, his radio station, everything you want to know about Jake on that Twitter handle. Thanks again. I'm definitely going to go and check out his Locked On Cougars podcast from, I believe he said it was December, Jim McMahon interview. I can't believe he said the Bears were holding me back. I think you were holding the Bears back, Jim, mostly because you were injured, but the fact that you have had a lot of chronic conditions from it, I'll let you have that one. And who knows, maybe he's getting up there in age. Maybe a little bit looser lips is why he said that. But once again, thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. A lot of really good appearance from Jake Hatch. Once again, go follow the podcast on Twitter, JWS Detective. Go rate, review, subscribe. And as always, we will see you next time.